in a history museum. The lives of people in a community thousands of years ago stand alongside the events that are still unfolding today. At its heart, the History Museum is a place of storytelling. Who is responsible for collecting these stories? For how they're told? For how they're reinterpreted and remembered in the future? My name is Natalia Guerrero, and this is Avant, a series by Women in the Arts, Inc. to introduce you to the life, work, and legacy of contemporary women artists and art industry leaders. In this episode of the series, I speak with Pamela Schwartz, who is the executive director of the Orange County Regional History Center in Orlando, Florida. I visited her at the History Center, along with Maria Guerrero, the founder and director of Women in the Arts, Inc. The windows of Pamela's office in the History Center look out over Orlando, the streets and buildings sprawling out from different periods in the city's growth. We had walked through a few of the History Center's special exhibitions on our way up, stepping through centuries of Central Florida history, and I was ready to learn more about how the collection and curation of that history really worked. My name is Pam Schwartz, and I am the Executive Director of the Orange County Regional History Center in downtown Orlando. Pam has been the Executive Director at the History Center since early 2021. She started there in 2016 as the Chief Curator and Senior Program Manager. I wanted to understand what collecting and curation mean for her and why it's important to do so at the local level. All local history is national history. All national history probably has a local lens as well, right? So it kind of goes uh, back and forth uh, on sort of a a sliding scale of how how global to national to local you want to feature your story. Take the Civil War, for instance. That's That's a national story but there are these tiny little local pieces that build up to that that larger puzzle. And so sometimes we forget how local a story can be. Um, And so that's something that we really try to do is to teach these these big things, you know. And there's a lot of big national stories that happened here, right? Disney, Pulse, uh, far ends of the spectrum, (laughs) right? But they're both these events that put us and thrust us into the global spotlight. How do we sort of bring that in and show how it, it really, um, you know, because what, what the, the national story is about either of those events is not what the local story is either. So those are, are ways that we really try to um, make sure we're collecting the history and making sure that we're doing a good enough job that whenever we were to do an exhibit about something that's national, we have those, those local pieces. But at the end of the day, we only have the history in this museum that people bring to us. We cannot collect the history of a community or of a culture or of a religion or of a here unless the community works with us to be able to do that so that we have access to those stories and we have access to those so that we can also help to uh, put those histories up on a pedestal, literally, <laughs> into, a, into a glass case and let everybody else be able to learn from it, enjoy from it, cry about it, whatever, whatever those feelings are that come from those, those individual artifacts or photographs. Um, so it's really a community effort. We can't preserve the history on our own. We have to be able to do it with the community, not for the community, with the community. I learned from Pamela that collecting and curation can happen as events are unfolding. She told me about how she formulated the History Center's rapid response collection effort shortly after the Pulse nightclub tragedy in Orlando. You know, I always say that some curator someday is going to love me 
or they're going to loathe me. Those are the options. Love, loathe. Um, you know, I always say we, our museum sort of become a, a national leader in urgent uh, and contemporary response collecting. So responding to things with urgency that are happening now and trying to figure out how to collect them, right? Collecting the history as it's happening is really hard because what don't we have? We're missing historical perspective. Take a historical event that happened in 1910 by 1940, you're like, oh man, that was really, that was interesting. I wish we had that thing, but now it's too late to get it. So what we're trying to do is, is envision that. So it's sort of 50% look at historical events like it, what was important, what do we wish we had that we didn't get? 50% intuition, this feels important to me. I feel like it's going to be important in 50 years, right? So the day that Pulse happened, I woke up that morning and I was like, there are going to be stories to tell. I saw one mom on the TV after one friend, after whoever, and I said, somebody needs to know these people's stories other than them. And so I wrote a five-page plan and brought it to our staff and our staff just sort of all agreed. We're like, yeah, we don't know how to do this, <laughs> but we're going to figure out how to do this because we knew if we didn't collect it then and there, in 10 years, this wasn't going to be available in the same way. In just months, none of the memorial objects would have been there anymore. It rains every day here. All of those beautiful pieces of artwork, all of those beautiful handwritten notes, all of those, those creations and crafts, what would have happened to them? They wouldn't have been collected. They wouldn't be here to tell the story at the five-year remembrance, the 10-year, and in 50 years to see, you know, what, what caused the community to change over time? Well, this event did. And, you know, I don't know that it's that I knew it was what I had to do as much as I didn't know what else to do. This is the thing I know how to do, right? So it was sort of more of a default. I couldn't go give blood. I had just done it two weeks earlier. Um, I was like, they're going to have more than enough water. I don't need to donate that. And I said, well, there's, there's going to be all these stories to tell. And like I said, I sort of defaulted to, I guess, what I what I thought I could do best. Um, and it wasn't a perfect plan. I mean, it, it received many edits, but it, it kind of contained this list of like, this is what I'm seeing. These are, these are 10 or 15 things. If we only get 10 or 15 things to illustrate the story, because at the time I started writing the plan, there was half as many people killed that they knew about, right? Everything was still unfolding. And so to, to try to figure out everything, but we're still collecting pulse uh, every week. There's a new oral history, something, a quilt that comes in from Italy, um, you know, different things. We're still learning about Pulse and the global, global response, and the story's still unfolding. Surviving is a lifelong diagnosis, right? So you're never not a survivor after you've become one. Uh, and first responders are also survivors in their own way, and families are survivors in their own way, uh, if you want to look at, at using terminology of victims versus survivors it's it's an ongoing thing so we might do an oral history or collect something from one of the families in the first year but then what how, how has their experience changed by year 10 and is that worth recording and learning about because what does that teach us in 20 years if we look back at these oral histories well how did the medical profession deal with such severe trauma in 2016 how did families deal with this what worked for people, what didn't work for people. So it's not just about storytelling and understanding history or art or the beauty of the love and support that came out. It's also got these really practical purposes of, of education and how do we do better next time.
Contemporary or rapid response collecting continues to be a powerful tool to capture local, personal experiences of global events. We know with like 9-11, right? Not that they were the same in magnitude, but we work very closely with colleagues and are so thankful to colleagues at the 9-11 Museum. Um, there's a, an incredible staff there. Um, but one of the, the women that works at 9-11, Jan Ramirez, uh, she's an incredibly, incredibly incredibly amazing person. I could throw at least 17 more Incredibles in there. But she worked at the New York Historical Society at the time because there was no 9-11 museum. And after it happened, um, I don't remember the relationship, but somebody came in and they just dropped their mask on her desk and said, here's your first artifact. There we are. Contemporary collecting. We're collecting history. Literally, it's happening. And so she went out and started doing the work along with many other people to start collecting that event. And so you do see this in history um, on different levels. In the past four or five years between Pulse, uh, we went out for the Women's March. We went out for um, the Black Lives Matter protests, COVID. Other museums, the Smithsonian, you know, they're going out after the, the, the Capitol riots. All of these different things that are happening, we're learning the value of Collect It Now because we're also a very disposable society. Those posters are going to get thrown away. They, they might get shoved in somebody's closet who's got a little nostalgia <laughs> uh, and attachment, and then they get moved to the next apartment and then the next apartment, and then eventually they're ratty and they're just like, you know what, I can't keep keep these. And they get thrown away. So we go out and we try to actively figure figure out what what might be uh, the thing that can help tell that story. It's it's much more of a movement now in the last five or six years, and we've we've worked with a lot of places who've had events happen in their community. And they've called us and said, what do you do? Just a month after Pulse, somebody, a curator from Dallas, called me after the, the police shootings. And she says, how do I do oral histories with people who are so upset and so mad? So we spent a couple hours on the phone talking about that. How do you approach people? How do you explain what an oral history is? How do you explain what the the plan to do with that? And we, we have over 900 or so oral histories here, which are really important. It's people telling the story from their own voice, their own experience. It's not us as curators interpreting it and putting it in text panels on the wall in a, in a cute 75 to 125 words, right? Different communities, different curators and museums are trying to figure out how we do this. And I think we also are going to have to be realistic with ourselves that in 10 years if we look back at a collection we made now and we're like we don't need 100 of these things maybe we only need 25 trying to figure out what the ethical um, plan is towards being able to deaccession you bring something into the collection it's accessioning it when you take it out it's deaccessioning there's a lot of rules and regulations um, around deaccessioning because you shouldn't bring something in and then just get rid of it willy-nilly, right? So these are conversations we're going to all have to continue to have and to sort of morph our thinking and figure out how do we do this. Is it more important to not have to deaccession later? Is it more important to get it now while we can? And then as we need different space resources or we learn more about the event, peel it back later. We have to weigh and balance these really practical things against these sort of emotional things against these really philosophical things. It's really complicated. Um, and the best we can do is the best that we can do to try to figure out what tells the story 50 years from now, 100 years from now. What tells the story? Right after Pulse, like when we were out in the memorials, I always got the question, why do people leave stuff? I don't know, ask them, <laughs> ask, ask the people. You know, the, the thing that I can best, it, it, I've thought about this endlessly for five years. 
um, thought about why, why, what, what does compel people to leave this or that? To, to rip the edge off of a Girl Scout cookie box and write a note to first responders and leave it at a place where so many people were killed. What compels a person to do that? Um, I think it's replacing destruction with creation, right? It's, we don't know what to do with our emotions. There's a void. We need to fill that void by creating something and putting it back, right? At the memorials or on our wall or, right? And so, I mean, I, that's not everybody's reason, right? But that's the best way I can try to boil down the whole of the memorialization experience is something's been taken. There's, we can't go to Pulse anymore. We can't call our son anymore. We can't do this. What we can do is try to leave something so that they know we care, try to create something beautiful to, to sort of snuff out the ugliness, right? Not that you can ever get rid of it. But I really think it's, it's a matter of replacing our feelings or trying to, to um, again, uh, create where there's just been destruction. We also talked about the differences in how art and history are collected. In the museum, the work of artists can be used to tell the story of a particular time and place. I think art has always been many things, but the art that has been preserved is more singular in a vein, right? So what art persists? How much art has been lost to the world? How many artworks? How many artists were never known? How many artists weren't known until they were long gone, right? Our most famous artists didn't have the recognition while they were alive. And what was the purpose of that art? Was it their healing? Was it to document a beautiful field? Was it, I simply need to do something with my hand <laughs> and this is what flows from me sort of a thing, right? Um, do I have a statement to make? Um, you know, I think throughout time, we maybe always haven't been able to record why the why, the why of art. We as historians can see art in many things where others could not. A protest poster, right? Just a little handwritten note from a little girl to a first responder thanking them for what they did after Pulse. And so, again, for us, uh, being a history museum, it's a little bit different in how we sometimes interpret. It's not just a title, which sometimes a title can tell you what you need to know about an artwork. Sometimes just having the artist's name tells you maybe what you need to know about an artwork, right? For us, there's a text panel and a story, right? We, we want to help people sort of understand and interpret, um, but we don't want to take away what it also just sort of inherently means to them. That's something that I think we'll see with, with Pulse is there's a lot of artworks that were created immediately. And I think we'll view them differently now than we will view them 20 years from now but we'll also have a different perspective of our own, you know, in 25 years. Although it takes some self-awareness, artists who step back and take a look at their work with a historian's eye can find that that process helps them show how their own history has shaped their work when preparing a collection for a museum or gallery. I used to joke that artists shouldn't hang their own shows because they're so inside of it you know, we joke as museum curators that, you know, we're ver verbose people and we do all this stuff. We write these text panels. Who are we writing them for, us or somebody else? Well, we are not our visitors. We are not our viewers, right? So that is something that when we actively create museum exhibitions, we try to keep in mind. We are not our viewers. We should be having 
uh, a sister, a friend, somebody who's a non-museum, quote unquote, person walk through and tell us like that that doesn't make any sense to me what do you say well because we're so inside of our our own experience and our own things and when you get such a if you get a sort of a literal trans or if you i guess get from their own mouth the story from an artist it doesn't leave you any room for interpretation it doesn't leave you any room to bring necessarily your own personal connection in right so you know on the other hand nobody knows you better than you well sometimes and uh, so I think that's a thing too. And, and are we honest with ourselves? I think that's maybe the hardest part. And memory is not always as steady as we'd like it to be. Sometimes we rewrite our own history because it's what we need to do to survive in the moment and to survive now. We also talk about how we collect oral histories. Who better tells your story? Who better curates your own path and your feelings than you? But some people don't remember. Some people don't want you to know what actually happened, right? Sometimes we just, you know, we just uh, interpret it differently now than we did then, right? Because the pain has passed or the good has passed. I think it's a good, it's an exercise. It's a good exercise for people to, to reflect on where they've been. Mm -hmm. I think the best way to try to figure out where you want to go is to do that, right? So for artists, you know, they talk about different periods of art, well, what caused that change? Do you know? Or did it just sort of happen over time? Or did it happen overnight? What caused that? You know, because that, those are types of things that might continue to fuel these changes. Um, if not this, then, you know, if, if this thing didn't happen, then that thing didn't happen. So I think it's important for people because it's not always, a, a, I guess, a linear path and one that people have eyes on, you know, especially if an artist picks up and moves across the, the country and, and the curators there haven't been working with you for 40 years we, we don't know parts of your history, and so you kind of help, help to fill it in because it really does make a difference in your art and how it's interpreted. What have you been through in your life where this is the art you're creating now? Because I think, I mean, obviously every piece of artwork keeps a piece of the artist inside of it. Pamela's own journey to executive director of the History Center began when she collaborated on a historical project with a local artist in her community. Well, I started in museums by accident. Uh, I was 14 years old, and my yeah my high school bus driver, Jim, stopped me one day getting off the bus. He says, you're an art, right? And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> and he's like, do you want to work on a project with me? And I'm sitting here thinking, I'm like, what? <laughs> this is my bus driver. Turns out he was this incredible artist and carpenter, and he had built and made many of like the handmade signs for businesses around the community. So he asked my mom, he's like, hey, I've been asked to do a mural for the school board meeting room. I'd love to in involve some high schoolers. And I think your daughter would be great. She's also on the bus route, whatever. So my mom's like, yeah, sure, cool. Get her out of her hair. So we went and the first project he assigned me was to go to the local history museum and look at photographs and find photos of the community throughout time to be put into this mural that we were making. And I just became entranced. I couldn't stop looking at these photos. My little blue collar town in Iowa where, you know, everyone's like, oh, I hate where I grew up, became this incredibly fascinating place. There were elephants and parades in the streets and burlesque houses and soda fountains and all of this stuff that I had no idea. To me, it was like Walmart and the Makokota Caves, right? So I just I just couldn't stop. After we got done with the mural, I just couldn't stop. And so the, the museum director at the time, she's like, 
do you want to work here? And I'm like, yeah, actually. And so I kind of became the weekend curator. I worked almost every weekend, either a Saturday or Sunday, for all four years of high school. And that, that kind of wrote the rest of my story. We talked about possible pathways for entry for students looking to get started in the museum and how museum institutions can do better in how they provide internships and entry-level work experiences. My advice would be to just try to figure out what you're interested in, right? So if that's art, if that's history, if that's some combination, or if there's a specific thing, just do some research, find a local institution. This is the hardest part, right? Can you get a job there? Do they have internships? Can you volunteer? Can you afford to volunteer given what you've got going on in your life? That is the absolute hardest part. The museum field is not accessible right now. It is not as diverse as it should be in any of our disciplines, whether that's art, history, science centers, children's museum, it doesn't matter. It's not as diverse or as accessible as it needs to be. One of the things that we've done as an institution um, in the past uh, year, we actually this last summer had our first three paid internships. And we wrote the job descriptions to try to be very accessible. Two, they're all funded by individual donors, and one of those is actually a um, called Her Story, Women's Internship in History. And so anybody can apply for this, but it always focuses on researching some format or some form of uh, what it means to be a woman in Central Florida or raising up those narratives. And so the first project our intern did um, she uh, actually uh, did a research project about how uh, trans women's history is women's history. And so that was our inaugural project uh, and a really good opportunity. And we're hoping, we think she'll be coming back now to keep kind of volunteering and getting involved. So each summer we'll be doing uh, these different internships. We hope to continue to grow our paid internship program because it's that's really the truest way that people are going to be able to get into the field is by us. Not not interns or in volunteers or high schoolers or college people trying to figure out how to get in. It's going to be by us allowing them in, right? And it's something that we've not necessarily been nimble enough to do because we're short-staffed. We don't have enough money. We want to give interns or volunteers a good, qualified experience. We don't want people to come make coffee, do copies. We want them to come and learn and grow and do projects. But that takes our time and resources to be able to provide really quality experiences. And so we ourselves are trying to really shift that narrative. So look for opportunities like that, right? But those opportunities are more far apart uh, than we would like them to be. So, you know, I would also, you know, recommend if, 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 if somebody can do a little bit of writing, there's grants out there. Find a museum you like and say, hey, if I put in the time to write this grant, to try to fund a position, um, this is an idea for a project. What do you think? Try to find ways to make a space that may not exist for you. I hope museums and galleries will continue to go to the direction of creating those things. The reason, part of the reason, was because I've been a career intern. I've done so many internships and I've had such good experiences because of what the museums and those amazing colleagues gave to me. But now I'm on the other side and I'm doing the hiring and I can't get the candidates because we don't pay well enough or they don't have enough experience and we just we need somebody to be able to come in and do the job or 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 we have to help people get into this field because we lack diversity in our candidacy if I have a job 
I don't have diverse a diverse applicant pool right now because we've not created enough experiences that are for individuals who may not have the ability to go study abroad for a semester at a museum and not get paid for it, right, and things like that. So we're trying to do something from our own corner, and I guess I can encourage people to try to create their own experiences and try to sell themselves, which is sell themselves through creating a project uh, for an institution that aligns with their goals and mission, which seems backwards, but unfortunately it's little ways to start trying to break into the field and to also benefit yourself by sort of writing your own experience. Under Pamela's direction, the History Center will continue elevating the stories of the Central Florida community. Each oral history, artifact, and work of art that gets chosen contributes to the narrative for viewers now and in the future. So we, as the History Center, um, you know, we interpret and preserve over 14,000 years of history across the seven county region. So we're Orange County and each of the counties that touch it. That is a lot of history to fit into this building. From our perspective, we're always looking for ideas and different ways to tell stories. We do focus on Central Florida history. So when you come to an exhibition here, you'll probably see about Central Florida artists, people who lived here and did the bulk of their work here, or people who painted things or created artwork that was based around Central Florida or had some impact here, right? Uh, like I said, we did this uh, that exhibit a few years ago called The Accidental Historian, which was just people living locally, whether they were here for 30 years or three years, who were just going out and accidentally documenting history. Urban sketchers who just go paint on scene. We're catching construction and concerts and festivals and protests just by simply being there and drawing. 2023, we're doing an exhibition on um, the experience of people who Im have immigrated to Central Florida across time and what those stories of coming here include. There may be some opportunities to work with local artists who have come here, and especially if they depict their experience or their artwork somehow uh, is reflective of their, their life. And again, I think we all infuse a little bit of us uh, into the artwork. So I think there's opportunities uh, for us as an institution to work with our local artists, um, especially those who you know are women, um, those who have come here recently or long ago and for, for what purposes. Uh, but we also welcome ideas and opportunities uh, for partnerships and things. And so I think we can continue to explore that. And I think that if you have an idea, you should just take it to your local institution that you think makes sense and see if it sticks, because you just never know. That was Pam Schwartz, the executive director of the Orange County Regional History Center. And this has been an installation of Avant, a series by Women in the Arts, Inc., a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to celebrating the genius of women. For more information about our mission and programs, you can visit www.womenintheartz.org or find us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Women in the Arts, Inc.